Okay, dear Father, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for this celebration of your son's birth. And we just pray that as we understand Luke better, and that your Holy Spirit will guide us, and that we will really take to heart, and not just in our minds, but uh, truly emotionally in every way, uh, the wonder of the coming of Jesus. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, when I was growing up, my fondest memory of holidays was always the December holidays. It was first of all the longest holiday of the year. You know, November, December is the longest holiday of the year. And I remember my family used to go to Penang every year to go to Butterfaringi Beach. And in those days, in the 70s, there was only one hotel on the beach. You know, nowadays if you go to Penang, there are like gazillion hotels on the stretch of beach. So I, I have this picture of my great-grandmother at the beach, right? At the, I think it's called the Lone Pine Hotel, the Lone Star Hotel. It's like the only hotel on the beach. So you can see like it's kind of like really, uh, you know, simple, very straightforward. A bit like chalet like that, okay? And I remember also December was a good month because uh, my family used to celebrate Christians even though they weren't really Christians. So I remember going to my grandparents' place and um, my grandma, so this is my grandparents' place, right? So my grandma used to be a teacher at school and in those days, people always used to send Christmas cards right, to their friends. Uh, it's something that we don't really do now, but everybody would send Christmas cards. And my grandmother's house would literally be full of Christmas cards. There would be Christmas cards overflowing in the house. So what would happen was she would put the Christmas cards, you see the grill back here? She would close the grill and she would put all the Christmas cards on all the grills. I don't know whether you understand what I'm talking about or whether you've seen it before, but you just imagine all the grills here, right? They're just Christmas cards and like there'll be just one whole wall full of Christmas cards there. And on Christmas Day, I'd always look forward to going to the Christmas tree, right? See, there's a Christmas tree, my grandfather there. There'll always, always be new presents at Christmas time. No, like, that's not me, like, that's my uncle. That's my uncle and that's my... Yeah, that's me. <laughs> hey, see, this is interactive. Uh, see, that's me. Does it look like me? It looks a bit like uh, Ruel when he's about three years older, I think. Okay, so that's my grandfather, his son, which is my uncle. And now I always remember how Christmas Day was when the whole family came together. It was one of the rare times in uh in our house where we could actually turn on the air conditioning in the living room okay uh, at the for christmas lunch but i sort of think about the 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 joy in that time now I, I was sort of thinking about uh the world today and i was thinking how many of us today have felt real joy recently i think about it for a moment how many of us have really felt genuine joy recently because I think that in the world we live in, we have many things that we enjoy, but it's hard to find joy. So we enjoy a good movie, we have fun at a party, we take pleasure at having a good meal. But that's very different from joy, right? See, enjoying and joy are two different things. Having fun and having joyfulness or happiness is different from pleasure. And I remember reading what this philosopher said, and he said, we live in a world in this century which has left us with a maximum of choices but a minimum of meaning. In which we enjoy more and more things and we buy more and more things and we have more and more experiences but, but as a people, as a society, we don't have the joy of the past. 
Now the Bible actually tells us that in many ways we've lost the true meaning of Christmas and in many ways because of that we do not have the real joy that comes in Christmas. Now Luke begins his gospel in four verses by taking time to tell us and emphasize to the reader that what he is going to recount is something which has been verified and confirmed and corroborated. So he begins by saying, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So what is happening here is a bit like a, a newspaper reporter checking his facts, you know, interviewing his sources. A bit like a, a detective, you know, he canvasses the, the neighborhood, gets the eyewitnesses and speaks to them. A bit like a lawyer cross-examining the eyewitnesses. And this is what Luke has done. He has done the hard work to make sure that what he is writing here is nothing but the truth. So I remember watching this movie at the Lido last week. And I'm sure none of you have watched this movie. Right? Because it's only shown in two cinemas in Singapore. I think it's only shown in one now. It's called The Program. Right? It's about this guy called Lance Armstrong. Lance Armstrong was a seven-time winner of the Tour de France. But later he was found to be doping and uh, cheating on drugs and uh, all this sort of stuff, right? Uh, testosterone and uh, as well as blood, uh, blood uh, doping. And the movie is all about this journalist and the journalist is relentless in his pursuit of evidence. So even though he keeps winning, yet the journalist keeps pursuing the evidence to find out the truth. And I think that's what Luke is trying to do here. Luke is telling the reader, us, that he has checked everything from the beginning so that we may know the certainty of the things that have been taught. So it begins in verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, whose wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Now, it begins in a specific time, right? It's not like Star Wars. You know Star Wars is about uh, a galaxy in a place far, far away in a time long, long ago, something vague like that, right? But it sets the story of Jesus in the time of King Herod of Judea. Herod was actually known as Herod the Great. And he was actually um, commissioned to rule under Roman authority in 40 BC. But it wasn't until 37 BC that he managed to get from Rome to Judea to rule from 37 BC to 4 BC. You know, during that time, there's no budget airlines, right? So, it took a long time to get from Rome to Judea, three years, and then finally he ruled for a very long time, 37 BC to 4 BC. 33 years he ruled. And during his rule, there was a couple called Zechariah and Elizabeth. Both religious, both righteous before God, but they were in a sad situation. The sad situation was that they were childless. They were childless in verse 7 because Elizabeth was barren. She was unable to conceive. She couldn't have babies. But what made it more sad was they were both very, very old now. So even if Elizabeth could, by some miracle, become fertile, she couldn't have children because by now they were both very, very old senior citizens. It's a bit like a friend of mine, an American couple who were missionaries in Asia for many decades. They were childless and for many years kept praying for a child, but God never gave them one. And now they've gone back to America to retire. And for them... It's not even a possibility. They don't even think about having children because 
they are now so old in retirement that you know why would you expect them to have children? So that's the sort of situation that we find ourselves with Zechariah and Elizabeth. These are very, very old people, right? Old people, and it's impossible for them to have children. But then what happens is we find that uh, there is something to be, I guess, thankful about because Zechariah in verse eight, his division as a priest was on duty, and he was chosen by lot to become. Uh, the person to go into the temple of the Lord to burn incense. Now you might sort of think, isn't that a bit weird? It's like, you know, why do they choose someone by lot to go into the temple to burn incense? You know, it's a bit like, okay, Nick and myself, and why, you know, we have to like throw lots to decide who's going to preach this Sunday, right? But it was different in those days because the temple, you see this temple, the, the, the golden building, there was only one real temple in Jerusalem, and they were... How many priests do you think there were? There was one high priest, but how many other normal priests there were? But 18,000 priests. So there's only one temple, the 18,000 priests. So there's only one building, right? So there's only one, uh, 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 you know, one person can serve at one time. Like they can't all rush in there and do the stuff, right? So that's why it was been a big honor for, for uh, Zechariah to be chosen to go into the inner court to actually burn incense. So for those of you who can see a bit better, you see this big, uh, curtain and behind the curtain is the most holy place which only the high priest can go in so for Zechariah to be chosen to go into the inner place would be a great a great privilege right I mean it would be like a once in a very very long blue moon before he would go in there to serve in this way but when he goes in there he's shocked because he meets another person right? initially he probably thought hey it's my turn no hey what are you doing here you're tomorrow right no no he was shocked because here he sees an angel and his, his shock turns to fear. Because whenever you meet a heavenly messenger, you always feel fear because you are aware of how sinful you are and how worthy of judgment you are. So he meets this angel and he's filled with fear and the angel tells him he's got good news. His wife Elizabeth is going to give birth to a son. Now we can understand his joy but what we can't understand is what happens next because in verse 14 it says, many people will rejoice because of his birth. Now that's kind of strange because I want you to think for a second, when you have rejoiced at the birth of somebody else apart from your own children, which is never, right? I mean, like, it's like, who, why would you rejoice over the birth of someone? I mean, unless he's like Lionel Messi or, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo. But anyway, when they're born, you don't know how good they're going to be anyway, right, later on. But why does God bother to send an angel to tell Zechariah that his wife is going to give birth. You see, something significant is happening here. Uh, do you know how many children are born every day in the world? 353,000 kids are born every day, according to UNICEF. That's a lot of people, right? But no angels for them. But you see, if you actually look in the Old Testament, sending an angel to prepare the parents for uh, the birth of a child is very, very rare and very unique. It was... It was the last time, I think, was the angel appeared to Abraham to tell Abraham of how his wife was going to give birth. And we know how significant that was. So here, when the angel comes to speak to Zechariah, we should expect that something significant is going to happen. And he says that this child is going to bring great rejoicing. Why? Well, because he's going to do three things, right? He's going to go before God. He's going to prepare people for God. And he's going to turn people back towards God. God. Now, this key passage is found in verse 17, right? Because in verse 17 it says, He will go on before the Lord 
in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, in the ancient world, whenever the king would visit his people, in order for the people to get ready, he would send a herald, uh, an announcer, a messenger to get the people ready. So I live uh, in uh, what is, uh, I think part of my, I think my voting district is, is it Queenstown or something? Do you know why Queenstown is called Queenstown? Do you know why Queenstown is called Queenstown? You don't need to go on a heritage tour. <laughs> well, Queenstown was actually the first HDB estate in, in Singapore, do you know? No, no, it's Queenstown. You're wrong, Erica. You're wrong. Sorry. It's Queenstown. It's Queenstown. It's not Topaz. It's Queenstown. It's Queenstown. Anyway, it's called Queenstown because the Queen, actually the real Queen of England, came to visit Queenstown. Alright. That's why it's called Queenstown, not Kingstown. Okay. Because she visited, not the King, right? And in order to prepare for her arrival, they cleaned all the streets. They painted the building. They have a special flat that she was meant to visit where she was supposed to see the authentic Singaporean living there. Well, this is what John, the baby, was going to do. He was supposed to come to prepare the people for the coming of God. But he wasn't there to tell people to clean the streets or to paint the buildings. He would prepare the people, right, by turning their hearts, the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. Now, the angel here seems to speak. In riddles, right? Why, what does he mean? How, how does it prepare the people by turning the hearts of the fathers to the children? Isn't that a strange thing to say? What, what does the angel mean? Well, I think for ourselves, we are not so familiar with the Old Testament, so we, we can't catch what the angel is trying to allude to. But the clue is in the fact that he will come in the spirit of Malachi. Okay, so the Jew would go to the temple every week. He'd be listening to the Bible. So he'd be very familiar with the Bible. So it's a bit like saying to, for me to say to you, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only son, right? So if you all don't know that, you have to read the Bible a bit more. Okay, so when he says that to turn the hearts of the father to the children, he would expect the people to understand what comes next. You know, it's a bit like when you listen to radio, sometimes there's just radio shows where they have this competition where they, you know, like play the first few seconds and then you're supposed to ring in to guess what the song is and then you get a free movie ticket or, you know, facial or massage or don't know what lah. You know, or they will give you the words of the song and then you're supposed to fill out all the words, right? So if I say to you the words of the song, hello. Yeah, so then what does that mean? So obviously, but you know, that's because you're are the new generation. If I say to you hello, right, actually, it's originally from uh, Lionel Richie. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so... so huh? Is it me you're looking for? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you all can do the karaoke later. Right? Okay. So, in Elijah, in the book of Elijah, it says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. So how John the Baptist is going to prepare the people is he's going to bring harmony and peace and healing and reconciliation with human relationships, fathers and sons, sons and, 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 and the fathers, daughters and the mothers, 
all these relationships will, will be healed and reconciled. And part of how that will happen is because the people who will turn from their disobedience to the wisdom of the righteous. So instead of being disobedient to God, they will now become obedient to God. Instead of becoming foolish, they will become wise. Instead of doing the wrong thing, they will do the righteous thing. So as people turn back to God, then their relationships with one another as a family will be healed. Actually, you hear of this sometime, okay? So I, I didn't say, share this in the first service, but it just came to me. I remember when I was in Australia, uh, this pastor, Philip Jensen, gave the illustration how sometimes, you know, people come to faith and they, they are dealing with emotional issues or maybe they're drunk at home and they're always beating up their wives or abusing their children, right? Then when they become children, uh, sorry, when they become Christian, their, their, their children and their families will come and say, oh, what happened to, uh, my father, he's now such a responsible father. Instead of wasting his money on all the grog, right? He's now saving his money. He's he's bringing us out for dinner. He no longer smokes. He no longer drinks. So, in a sense, that's what happens when people make right their relationship with God. They will make right their relationship in the family. And that's why we haven't sung this song today. But you know this uh this song, right? Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinner reconciled. See, so there, there are two elements there, right? Peace on earth. And because there's peace on earth, it's because God and sinner has been reconciled. And part of what John the Baptist does, he is like the herald, okay? You notice there, it's not the name herald, H-O-R-A-L-D, right? It's H-E-R-A-L-D. The herald is the messenger, the announcer. So the, the herald angels, they cry out to prepare people for the coming of Jesus the King. And that's what John the Baptist does. He's heralding the coming of Jesus. Now I want you to consider a moment why Luke wrote his letter right, to Theophilus. Why, why did he bother to write to Theophilus? I guess because Theophilus had serious questions. Is Jesus really real? Can I believe that Jesus is the king? Can I believe that Jesus really brings in the kingdom of heaven? You know, I remember when I went to university, I had uh, all these things taught to me. Like in economics, we learn about supply and demand. You know, you go to accountancy, you learn about credits and debits. But supply and demand and credits and debits never changed anybody's life, right? It's like it doesn't, you know, fill you warmth inside your heart. You know, it's not. It's just information. But the arrival of Jesus, when you have convictions about Jesus, must change the way that you live, change the way that you feel, and change the way that you think, and change your relationship to each other and to God. And I think why. Luke wrote, was he wanted to make sure that we, together with Theophilus, are very, very sure that Jesus is God's Son who comes into the world. Because even before the coming of Jesus came John the Baptist. He came supernaturally, the angel announced his birth. He came to a very old couple who were barren. Zechariah was mute and they found that they both chose the name John. And I think why we were told this is so that we may know the certainty that many people would rejoice and should rejoice at the coming of Jesus. That's why Christmas is special. When we hear about the coming of Jesus, it should fill us with joy. I remember Matthew chapter 13, right? I never noticed this before until I read it in a commentary. He says, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. You know, whenever I remember this verse, I always forget the with joy part. I always think 
The man found the kingdom of heaven. He sold everything and then he he bought the sorry he sold everything and bought that field, the kingdom of heaven. But I always miss the part where it says with joy. You see, when you find the kingdom of heaven, even if you have to give up everything for the kingdom of heaven, in your heart you are filled with joy because you recognize what a great eternal blessing you've inherited. See, why is there to be really joyful about in the world today? You open the newspaper, there's bombing in Paris, there's shooting in America. Even in your daily life, right? there's pain and struggle, there's pettiness, there's smallness. In, your, in, in, in people's relationships. The only way right, you find true joy is not in the things of this world and get distracted by enjoying small things, but to see the reality of Jesus the King being born to bring in His kingdom. You know, there's a saying where it says, where there is life, there is hope. Have you heard the saying before, where there is life, there is hope? You never heard it before, Minkit. There's a will, there's a will. Okay, now that doesn't work, this illustration. Sorry. Where there's life, there is hope. Basically, it says that as long as you're alive, you can change the future, right? There is hope. But the problem is that the reality is every one of us will die, right? But I think there is a better, a better axiom which says where there is hope, there is life. You see, you are only really living when you have a hope in an eternal future. See, if you just live from day to day, every day is just one less day to live. Right? It's meaningless. Um, I gave this quote. I was in the car with the partner of my accounting firm and uh, he told me that he measures each day by the tablespoon of coffee that he drinks. So once he knows that, you know, I've drunk that tablespoon of coffee, that cup of coffee, that's another day gone lah. Then I was told by Audrey that actually it comes from a poem by this guy called T.S. Eliot. But anyway, whatever it is, but, but, so maybe he stole it from T.S. Eliot to say to me, lah. But whatever it is, it's still very, very depressing, right? Because every day is just one more cup of coffee. One more teaspoon of coffee is another day gone, another day less. You can't really have joy that way, right? Because you just realize that you're just getting fewer and fewer days left. But the coming of John the Baptist to herald the coming of Jesus is great news because we don't longer live that day. We, we live for an eternity. I remember Albert Einstein said, and again, I, this is new stuff I give you. See, that's why the third service is better. All this stuff comes to me. Albert Einstein said, there are two ways to view the world. One is that every day and everything is miraculous or every day and everything is ordinary. And I think that's very true, right? If you believe that there is a God who makes everything, there is a God who ordains everything, who gave you life and sends you Jesus so that you can live forever and ever, then every day is miraculous. The fact that you are alive, the fact that you have another day to live is miraculous. But if you think that everything is by chance and everything is just ordinary, there's no meaning. You you just happen to have another day. There's nothing miraculous about it. It's just an accident. If you're gone tomorrow, that's just too bad. So I think that... What the Bible tells us as we learn of John the Baptist is that we are actually designed for a greater life than just living day to day. And I think Christmas reminds us that as we remember the birth of Jesus, that Jesus is the Savior and we are to welcome Him. We are to see Him. 
as God's son, as a real person in history who ushers in his kingdom. You know, I went to a talk last week, and I think Nick was there, the other Nick. And uh, this Christian apologist, John Lennox, was saying that he was at uh, an apologetics uh, conference, a debate with an atheist. And the, the, the professor who was an atheist said, Oh, you know, your Jesus is like Santa Claus. He's just a figment of your imagination. He's a myth. I think Jen Lennox um, then stood up and he addressed a crowd of about a thousand people and says, how many of you came to believe in Santa Claus as an adult? And nobody put out their hands. Right? He says, how many of you came to believe in Jesus Christ as an adult? And about a hundred people put up their hands. And then he turned to the atheist professor and he said, don't put Jesus Christ and Santa Claus on the same footing because they are completely different category of people, right? Santa Claus is clearly a myth, a legend, and he's not meant to be real. But Jesus Christ is real, he is attested, and he is believable. And I think that's very, very important to us because when we see that Christmas celebrates something real and not Santa Claus, then it actually teaches us the real meaning of Christmas. Not Santa Claus, who we all... How many of you believe in Santa Claus? We all don't... Uh, we all don't believe... In Santa Claus, right? But we all know that Jesus is attested in the Bible to be real, and He is the one who gives true meaning to the Christmas, not the fake, right? Who's Santa Claus? And actually, the Bible tells us here through the angel that to not welcome Jesus, the Lord, who John the Baptist was the herald for, is disobedience. Is to remain in disobedience, right? Remember what the angel said. He wants. John the Baptist to move people from disobedience to the wisdom of the righteous. So to actually not welcome Jesus, the Lord, the King, God, is disobedience. It is foolishness because you failed to move to wisdom. It is wrong living because you failed to move to righteousness. I remember this guy who I meet quite regularly, and every time I meet him, he's always trying to tell me what a good person he is. Maybe because I'm a pastor, right? So he's always trying to tell me how good he is. But the reality is that, actually, we are not good people. And the problem is that if you do not welcome God and God's Son, you cannot be considered good. See, if you're a child and you fail to acknowledge your father or fail to acknowledge your mother as your father or mother, then how can you be considered good? You are not good because you, no matter how good you are, you fail to acknowledge the person who gave you life. So the same way, if we do not acknowledge Jesus, who is God, come around Christmas, then we are foolish, we are disobedient, we are not living the right way. We cannot consider ourselves doing the right thing. So in conclusion, I want to share you a quote by this uh, philosopher called Siren Kierkegaard. He says, there are two ways to be fooled. One is to believe what isn't true, and the other is to refuse to believe what is true. Now, I want you to consider that for a moment. There are two ways to be fooled. One is to believe what isn't true, and the other is to refuse to believe what is true. And the Bible says very clearly, He makes Luke makes very, very great pains. He takes great pains to tell you this is true. That God sent John the Baptist, signaled by the angel, in a miraculous way, that he will be the herald, the preparer, the messenger for God's Son. And what he has told us is to turn away from disobedience, 
to be wise, to be righteous, and to accept Jesus Christ the Son. Only in that way will you really understand the true joy that God wants us to have at Christmas. See, there is there's a paradox, right, in the sense where the more you want to chase joy, the more miserable you are. See, if I say to you, be happy, be joyful. Okay, I want you to count to three now, right? One, two, three. Be joyful. <laughs> and that's rule, rules are there. You can't, you see, you can't make yourself joyful. You can't make yourself be happy. But there's, there's only joy that comes because there is a reason for joy. Right? And that reason is Jesus Christ coming as the King to bring His heavenly kingdom, to know the certainty that you belong in that eternal heavenly kingdom. That is why we have joy in Christmas. Okay, any questions?